MakeReal specializes in creating immersive learning solutions across a range of technologies. To download their latest academic paper on how to turn learners into activists, visit makereal.co.uk slash activists. Hello, I'm Kate Fitzgerald from the Learning Hack team, welcoming you to a new episode of Great Minds on Learning. In this highly acclaimed series, Professor Donald Clark, internationally famous author, blogger and entrepreneur, joins John Helmer to explore two and a half thousand years of thought and theorising about learning from the Greeks to the geeks. This episode covers a sizeable sweep of history from the perhaps misnamed Dark Ages and the Islamic Golden Age on through the Renaissance, Reformation and Enlightenment. As the Christian and Islamic faiths spread, learning became a powerful tool of religion and religious educators in their turn changed the shape of learning. So welcome to this episode of Great Minds on Learning on the subject of religious educators. Uh, And welcome to Donald. Donald, last season we did an episode on religious leaders, Jesus, Buddha, Muhammad and the rest. This time it's religious educators. What's different about this group from the former? Give us an overview, please, of the theorists we're covering this time. Sure thing, John. So we had a programme on the Greeks and they were terribly important. And we had a program on religious leaders, uh, uh, Jesus, Buddha, Muhammad, and Confucius, the sort of quasi-religious leader. So they were two sort of origin stories or foundation steps. But of course, there is this vast period up to the Reformation, which is uh, sometimes called the Dark Ages. And But there is a sort of, you know, golden thread from those two deep origins, those big tributaries, a bit like the Nile, the Blue, the, the blue and the White Nile coming together to form... Uh, a post-Reformation world and ultimately the Enlightenment. So across that period, the sort of thread, as it were, we've had a towering figure in St. Augustine, 4th century AD, who really is a bridge from the, who brings Christianity and Plato together. So he's a Platonist, uh, but he's he's a towering figure in learning theory because his two books, and I have his two books here, The Confessions is an absolutely fantastic, quite racy sort of book for its time, 4th century AD, remember, and then his massive 1,100-page City of God, which is his magnum opus, philosophical work, really. But he brings religion and the Greeks together, namely Plato, and writes extensively on, on education, and we'll come to him in a moment, then, we, of course, we'll touch upon the Arab world because in the in the 11th and 12th century in, uh, you know, Damascus, Baghdad, you have these centres of learning. And they are the people who act as a bridge from the Greek world. So we have lots of Greek texts, especially Aristotle into Aquinas and so on. And so they are a bridge into ultimately the Renaissance and the Reformation as well, because a lot of this classical secular knowledge comes through these people. And then we have the the Battle Royale and the Reformation, we have uh, the Reformation and Counter-Reformation. The two big figures there, of course, on the Protestant side or the Reformation side are Luther first and then Calvin. And then we have uh, Ignatius, uh, the, the Catholic Counter-Reformation figure who's uh, <laughs> who comes just after them, but uh, uh, it's uh, contemporary, contemporaneous with Luther, but really consolidates the solid 
background in Catholic teaching, which comes really through Aquinas, eh, through the Jesuits, and dominates South America and those areas of the world that have Catholicism as their basic uh, belief state. And then there's a really lovely figure afterwards, Comenius, who I really love, because as you emerge from printing and the Reformation, you have somebody who lays the foundation. Uh, he writes the first textbooks, amazing books. They really are worth, they're all free on the internet. They're worth looking at. But he really consolidates in a practical way that idea of universal schooling uh, and uh, pan-Sophism, the idea that the, there is universal knowledge for everyone, rich and poor, uh, anywhere in the world, that's a global view of learning. So an interesting thread that comes through to the Reformation and sets us off towards the Enlightenment. Okay, lots to cram in. Let's get going. <laughs> yeah. So Augustine of Hippo, 354 to 430, also known as St. Augustine, was a theologian and philosopher of Berber origin and the Bishop of Hippo Regius in Numidia, Roman North Africa. His writings influenced the development of Western philosophy and Western Christianity, and he is viewed as one of the most important church fathers of the Latin church in the patristic period. His many important works include The City of God, which you uh, were flashing around there, so impressed with the size of that book, on <laughs> Christian doctrine, and of course his famous Confessions, a work of spiritual autobiography, perhaps the first work of spiritual autobiography. Weaned off an early interest in Manichaeanism by Neoplatonism, he underwent a conversion to Christianity, the faith of his mother, Monica, partly through her influence, but also that of St. Jerome. He wrote prolifically and spent a lot of his adult life in polemical disputation, which I know you like to do a little bit of, Donald. Highly <laughs> relatable for his admission in the Confessions that it's not at all easy being good. Massively quotable and misquotable. Famous quotes include... Lord, give me chastity and continence, but not yet, used by many an erring cleric in public life. Also quoted in the wasteland, to Carthage, then I came burning, burning. Donald is a huge figure in culture, a, a church father who atheists like to read too. But what's his importance for learning? Yes, it's often missed out this, but... <laughs> If you read the Confessions, which is a fantastic book, I remember this in fourth century AD, uh, because he tackles his own learning. What was school like for himself, you know? And he hated school. He's one of those kids who really loathed what he had. He loathed being taught in Greek, which uh, of course it was later Latin, but similar thing, a classical language of teaching. Then he hated that sort of memorization, rote learning stuff, uh, and and also mentions the sort of punishment, uh, you know the almost the culture of punishing people whenever they made mistakes in school. So the whole culture of ignoring the learner, everything was teacher-driven and, and quite brutal, is really amazing in the book itself. The book is it, it, almost a lesson on how not to teach and how not to motivate learners. But the book is interesting as well because it's soaked in, of, of course, his self-loathing over the sins he committed when he was a young man. So he has an affair with a, an unmarried woman who he has a child with, and so it's all about lust and him stealing things. And, the, you know, that's sort of wild teenage years that he had. Mm. So he has all these negative experiences as a youth, as a, a learner in school, and then turns his attention a wee bit later, actually, in another book called The, uh, called the Teacher. And then there's another book called The the, the Catechizandus Rudibus. <laughs> and both those books actually attend to teaching and learning. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a lot of detail in there. 
Oh, and there really, it really is a, amazingly modern, you know, this notion of encouraging, really talks a lot about intrinsic motivation, uh, encouraging curiosity, you know, getting rid of all that punishment, you know, the technology of punishment, as it were, and that attitude that you have to beat people into submission to learn. And also a lot about teachers. The book, The Teachers, about planning lessons. It's, it reads as if it's right off the shelf. Now, planning lessons, the teachers have to themselves learn how to teach. It's a sort of practice, which many teachers, of course, would agree. Anyone who's tried it would know this. And also be ultra sensitive to the nature of the learner. And this is the first time you really see this in a big way. Uh, you know, the, the, that sensitivity towards learners, he expresses in a lot of detail. And in many ways, he's saying teachers might be the problem here. You know, the, the, this overbearing, didactic view of the world, often in his time driven by religious zeal, but maybe that's the wrong way. And he talks in very eloquent terms about a restrained style of teaching. In fact, he has these sort of almost like teaching styles, you know, it's not fashionable these days, but he talks about a restrained, the simple, keeping things simple, very direct. Uh, for the learner. He then says that you have to adapt your teaching style up into what he calls a mixed style, where you're elaborating more. You know, you're giving more, you're trying to motivate the learner into being more autonomous. And then the grand style, which he, he describes as really changing hearts and minds, you know, that convincing last push uh, where, you, where you get people on board and whatever you're trying to teach. So it's all about motivation. That's a really important thing for, uh, for Augustine. So some strangely familiar things. Yeah, incredibly contemporary, uh, you know, almost astonishingly so. I mean, you have to wait really until the Enlightenment, almost 1,300 years later until you get people like Locke and so on, uh, Mary Wilson, uh, Kraft and so on, they, who, who really reflect a lot on motivation and the nature of the learner and learning. And, of course, Rousseau. Uh, Rousseau was a great fan of St. Augustine, by the way. So I think we have, you know, you have that link but you, you have a, almost a, an echo of what's to come in the Enlightenment in these writers. Well, our listeners only have to wait about half an hour till we get to the Enlightenment. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go to, I, I have to apologise in advance, my terrible pronunciation of, of, of Arabic. I've, I've no knowledge of how to do it, really. So I'm, I'm pretty, pretty much <laughs> guessing here. Al-Ghazai. Uh, 1058 to 1111, that's a very easy death date to remember, was a Persian polymath known as one of the most prominent and influential jury consults, legal theorists, muftis, philosophers, theologians, logicians, and mystics of the Islamic golden age. He had a lot of range and was actually criticized by that. You know, you're a Sufi to the Sufists, you're a uh, this to them, you're this to, to those people. Born in Iran, he taught theology and philosophy in Baghdad. Al-Ghazali Al believed that the Islamic spiritual tradition had become moribund and wanted to renew it, and that spiritual sciences taught by the first generations of Muslims had been forgotten. This led him to write his magnum opus entitled The Revival of the Religious Sciences. Outside the Muslim world, he influenced many thinkers, including William James and Thomas Aquinas. Donald, how should he influence us to think about learning? Yes, well, there are a number of Arab scholars who act as a a bridge from the classical world. So these, I mean, the great centers of learning in Damascus and in Baghdad, Cairo, I mean, he's based in Baghdad, but I mean, these, these are writers who have Plato and Aristotle and Christian scholars as well at their fingertips in their libraries, and they're writing a, a scholarly works themselves. He is unique in, in that in his 
The Rescue from Loss and the Revival, two books, he actually addresses the whole teaching and learning thing. So it's not just about how to live, you know, a good religious life under the submission of Islam. It's also the important role of teaching and learning in that context. So unusually, uh, some may say, but it doesn't surprise me in the slightest, that, you know, you have this rich tradition in Baghdad at the time of critical thinking. Mm -hmm. uh, which is often odd in what some would regard as a dogmatic religious context. But the role of reason and logic and critical thinking, all the things that we uh, sort of respect post-Enlightenment, of course, Islam didn't have a reformation, but it was there then in those earlier days in, in Damascus, but more importantly, Baghdad, I think. So teaching yeah. and learning, I mean, you must remember that if this was about this was about Islam, and was about moral purpose. That was the primary role of the teacher. But he, he it's interesting. One of the things I like when he talks about humility, I was I actually had a day with Julian Stodd recently, who's written a, a book on humility and learning, and it had lots of echoes uh, of, the, uh, of these Arab scholars. They talk about the humility that a teacher must have, humility and honesty, you know. Uh, it's not about pulling the wools over the eyes of the learner. It's about bringing yourself to their level and engaging in critical thought with the learner. So a really interesting figure. We could say a lot more about him. We do have to scurry along now to <laughs> Ibn Tufai, 1106 to 1185, born near Granada in Spain. So interesting that we started with St. Augustine in North Africa. We then went to uh, Persia, Iran, and now we're with in Andalusia, which is the, the, the kind of the bit of Spain where many people go on holiday, uh, which at that time was... Um, the Arab world was in charge of that. So he was an Andalusian Muslim polymath, another polymath, writer, philosopher, theologian, physician, astronomer, and vizier. Most famous for writing uh, this extraordinary book, the first yeah. philosophical novel, um, I'm going to have trouble with again, Hai Ibn Yadan, the, translated as The Living Son of the Vigilant. I've seen some very different ways that this title is translated, but let's, let's go with that for now. The Living Son of the Vigilant, a major work of Arabic literature in which an autodidactic feral child raised by a gazelle and living alone on a desert island discovers ultimate truth through a systematic process of reasoned inquiry. Possibly, and quite probably, I think, um, the inspiration for Daniel Defoe's Robinson Crusoe. There, there are a lot of points of plot correspondence um, in yeah. that book. Um, it also contains pre-echoes of, of Caspar Hauser and th things we read in Rousseau. It's not completely outlandish to think that De Defoe was inspired by this because it, it was a bestseller throughout Western yeah. Europe in the 17th and 18th centuries and influential on a whole host of blokes in wigs, including Leibniz, Voltaire, and many other Enlightenment figures. Donald, he was a critic, critic of Al-Ghazai. How did yeah. he move the understanding of learning forward with this wonderful book? Yes, as you, as you rightly say, I think he almost certainly was the inspiration for Daniel Defoe's uh, Robinson Crusoe. Uh, although it's a, it's a, it's a sort of funny way, a sort of more deeper and reflexive, reflective book than, uh, than Robinson Crusoe. Crusoe, uh, famous Scot, is based, of course, on the famous true story of uh, Alexander Selkirk. I was there recently, actually, in Lower and Upper Largo, which is where this guy was born and went back to live. That's Alexander Selkirk. But his, his book is interesting because it's related to the learning theory as well. The book is a bit like Rousseau's Emile. So you're describing oh, yeah. the person who learns themselves because he's isolated. He does no, no one to draw upon, but, come, but gets an understanding of the world he exists in, the universe, and of course, God. It's a fundamentally still a religious text through their own efforts. 
their own efforts to learn from themselves. Now, what what he does though is quite interesting because he also makes this big distinction between logical sort of reasoning learning and intuition. It's it's a bit like Daniel Kahneman's fast and slow thinking. Yeah. So you have this, you know, normally we we're just in a rush, we're thinking intuitively, we have all these biases, and that is tempered by logical. Uh, our logical reflection on the, well, hold on a minute, is that true? You know, what do the numbers say? What does the data say type idea? Mm. So he's, he's in this uh, Neoplatonist tradition like St. Augustine as well, but in an entirely different context. But he also brings in this time, of course, Aristotle is coming through the Arab scholars and Aristotle comes through into the Catholic Church via Aquinas in this period. So, you know, the, these are really important springboards or bridges into the the western world from the arab world a bridge curiously from greece greece to baghdad back into europe again which then goes on to the renaissance and some of the and the, ultimately the reformation and some of the figures we're just about to discuss okay let's move on it it, it feels like a, a a lightning tour this so much more to say about these people <laughs> yeah. but we have to get going it's a long period, of course. We're, we're really what we're covering from. We're covering something like twelve to thirteen hundred years here. So, uh... absolutely. Yeah. So Ignatius of Loyola, fourteen ninety one to fifteen fifty six, a fancy dresser, an expert dancer, a womanizer sensitive to insult, and a rough punkish swordsman who used his privileged status to escape prosecution for violent crimes committed with his priest brother at carnival time. This was how a contemporary described the aristocratic Basque soldier Ignatius at 17. However, his military career was cut short by a cannonball at the Battle of Pamplona, which shattered his right leg. And it was while recovering from that surgery that he underwent a spiritual conversion and was called to the religious life and became a very different person. The, the, the theme of dramatic conversion runs right through a, a number of these people. Nevertheless, when with friends, including Francis Xavier and Peter Faber, he founded the Society of Jesus, known as the Jesuits, it maintained a pronounced military character. Uh, it's been popularly known as God's Soldiers or the Company. Interestingly, a nickname also used at the CIA. Uh, and, and you could look at the, um, the Jesuits as, as being an analogous organization to the CIA in world history. So, you know, I, I know as a Catholic, ex-Catholic, I, I have a lot of anecdotal stuff about the Jesuits I'm not going to go into because we don't have time. <laughs> the relevance of this man to education um, ought to be obvious just from his fav famous quote, give me a boy until he is 10 and I'll give you the man. How many people are going to give over a 10-year-old boy to Catholic? nowadays i don't know and from their founding to the present day the jays as they're also known uh, have always placed a huge emphasis on education but donald how significant was the legacy of ignatius in the development of learning oh yeah we're, we're about to hit the reformation and we'll deal with luther and calvin uh, in a moment no doubt but of course you know, for some things forget we have a counter-reformation so ignatius is really a reformation figure as a, as a counter-revolutionary almost, as a founder of the Jesuits, of course, uh, who, whose famous phrase was, uh, go set the world on fire, uh, you know, in, in Latin, eta inflammate uh, omnia. So the, the, at that point, remember he was born, as you say, 1491, uh, Columbus hits America, 1492, the South America and uh, that, uh, that colonialism from Portugal and Spain spreads throughout the Southern Hemisphere, taking Catholicism and education with it. Uh, 
So he not only founds the Jesuits, but he writes the Jesuit const uh, constitutions, and which have a very strong educational feel to them. You know, he's saying uh, he's saying that the real weapon in terms of the spread into remote locations by these zealots, these defenders of the faith, was going to be the the process of schooling and education. But it was quite, you know, more enlightened than, you know, the, the famous phrase, of course, is the one you mentioned about, you know, give me, a, give me the boy until he's 10, I'll give you the man. But actually, there was some quite liberal aspects to this education that we shouldn't forget as well. Mm -hmm. they, they were quite keen on not only teaching in Latin, which they did, but also the study of native languages of the, of the students were important to the teachers. Things like history, mathematics, geography, the arts even, and drama, which they got from uh, classical knowledge, of course, the Greeks, and, even, and the natural sciences. So he was an important figure in that side of the equation as a counter-reformation figure. But there was also the a little bit later, you have the Constitutions of Society of Jesus that really, get, he's saying that, that you have to imp you have improvements in, in living and learning for the greater glory of God and the common good. That's in the Constitution itself. But you then, and about towards the end of the 16th century, you have the, the Ratio Studorium, which is really like a manual for teachers, a manual which decides how the Catholic Church will teach in South America, in the Philippines, and across the world. That, interestingly, was updated as recently in 1986 as the characteristics of Jesuit education. This is still a massive educational movement globally. Mm. Hundreds of schools, even universities and so on. But they have always had a sort of Jesuit educational manual. You know, it's like it's been the, the Ratio Studorium it was written by not, uh, not Ignatius himself, uh, by a guy called Aquaviva. But that has been the core almost... It's almost like a, a religious syllabus with loads of secular stuff in it, the Jesuit educational manual, mm -hmm. uh, because ultimately it's a tool of the Catholic Church, of course. Yeah. Uh, but what's interesting, I think, is this notion that includes the arts, includes drama, physical education, critical thinking, all those sort of things that we regard as secular. But they were, to be fair, they were in, in Catholic education right from the, the beginning in the Counter-Reformation. I mean, Latin, Latin was compulsory, and that's one side I don't like about this because that, that just is still ridiculous that we should be talking about a modern curriculum that teaches Latin, in my view. That's just, I think, almost idiotic and absurd because it doesn't help people learn other languages. All the evidence shows that all those arguments are a waste of time, really. But I think, you know, Ignatius's influence on modern-day education is still here, especially in the U.S., where... Really, the Loyola schools are are part part of the mainstream educational landscape. Still, there are plenty of them. You know, hundreds of secondary schools. I think it's about fifty countries that are they're still in. Yeah. Dozens and dozens of higher education establishments as well. Yeah, it's good to emphasise the the richness and broadness of the type of education that Jesuits. Yes, they they kind of turn up everywhere in twentieth century literature. And any kind of author who wants to take a broad sweep of culture, they seem to get introduced. So, so they're kind of in evil in war. Uh, there's there's a, a, a long, exhaustively combative uh, series of debates in Thomas Mann's book, The Magic Mountain, between a Jesuit and, a, and an Italian revolutionary that occupy most of the second half of the book. Uh, it turns up in, in Pension, you, you have Jesuits. Um, uh, I, I could go on and on. But, yeah, but, but I, such an interesting organisation, I think. Yeah, I think, that's, I think that's to do with the, you know, there is this view that the Reformation absolutely succeeded, which in a sense it did, but not wholly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, in culture, there was the Counter-Reformation, 
and that's still alive and kicking. I've just given you some of the stats around that. It, yeah. uh, and if you go to other cultures uh, in South America, especially, but in other parts of the world, you find that the European concept of uh, a post-Reformation world is not as certain as one might imagine. Yeah. Uh, so that battle is still ongoing. And of course, the religious wars that ensued for hundreds of years after the Reformation meant that that continued. And it's still there in Northern Ireland in Belgium, which is split, in Holland and all sorts of places where you have this, still this clash between these, the, the post-Reformation and, and Catholic counter-Reformation cultures. Okay. Southern Northern Europe split to this day. We hope this podcast ups your knowledge about learning. But did you know learning podcasts, that's audio training created according to evidence-based principles, is a powerful and fast-growing medium. Assemble You is an audio-first provider with a ready-built course library to help your people improve productivity, leadership, well-being, and more in their downtime. Assemble You also creates audio courses unique to your company or institution. Try it free today at assembleyou.com slash greatminds, all one word. So we've uh, slightly got ahead of ourselves because we've done the counter-revolution before, reformation yeah. before we've done the reformation. So let's correct that breach now, and we'll talk about somebody who's very well known, course martin luther 1483 to 1546 uh, luther was a german priest theologian author hymn writer professor and augustinian friar is the seminal figure of the protestant reformation whose followers became known as lutherans my although i had a catholic mother my father was brought up in the lutheran faith um we roundly rejected it the story is almost too well known to bear repeating the nailing of his 95 theses to the door of All Saints Church in Wittenberg, Wittenberg, which might or might not actually have happened. The Diet of Worms, which of course I found excruciatingly amusing when we studied it at school and sniggered at, the, at that title. And his subsequent excommunication by the Pope. Excommunication in those days was a really serious thing. It, it meant that um, anyone who wanted to kill you had impunity. Donald's original quarrel with the church was all about indulgences and, and on the face of it, a fairly obvious corrupt practice um, that uh, surprised it couldn't be quite more easily rooted out. But the changes he actually brought about went far deeper than that and um, down to the very basic tenets of the faith, transubstantiation uh, and so on. But to what extent did the way he changed Christianity change learning? Yeah, so I really feel this one in the same way that you were brought up in a Catholic tradition, John, I was brought up in more of Calvinist, less Luther was more Northern Europe, but Scotland through John Knox was really a Calvinist tradition, but know this culture well. This culture of it's just me, just you, the good book and God, you know, forget yeah. priesthood, forget ritual, forget church as it were, that's secondary. And this is why it has huge consequences in terms of learning and learning theory, uh, and also heralds in printing and the more secular form of education. But Yes, it was more. It was far more than just uh, oh, yeah, indulgences. A bit of an indulgence. It, it was really about a much more deep, deep-seated view of the individual in relation to religion, but also the world at large. Suddenly, Christianity embraced the idea that learning and schooling was a good thing. Knowing about earth, the earthly world, as it were, as opposed to the heavenly realm only, was a very positive thing. Mm. So Luther is unique because he actually writes. He writes books, two big books on education. 
and they've got really weird titles. It doesn't sound as though they're, they're a very educational book. The first one was addressing the mayor, the mayors and aldermen of the cities of Germany. It's actually called that on behalf of Christian schools. It's got schools in the title where he's recommending that the country, not really a fully formed country then, quite a federal sort of loose state, uh, uh, he's recommending that they introduce universal schooling. And then a second book, The Duty of Sending Children to School, The Duty of Sending Children to School, means that it's a religious imperative that we put scripture and Christian belief in the hands of the people and that they must understand and read scripture directly in their own language. So we, you have this notion of both a spiritual and civic education, that may be a better way of putting it, in the mayor's book, uh, he's addressing all these town councillors and so on, but but he quotes directly from scripture itself, from Psalms and Deuteronomy, saying, listen, the book itself says you should do this, in the same way that Islam has a, a sutra that talks about using writing and education as well. There was almost, it's God's command that you do this. But he focuses on the state. He's a good politician, Luther. He says, the only way I'm going to get this done is not through the church or the Reformation, because we're actually burning the, <laughs> almost everything that exists in churches and dismantling the church in the priesthood. So he turns his attention to schools and schools for everyone, the rich, the poor, you know, uh, the, the sacred or the secular. It doesn't really matter uh, for him. And so you suddenly have the emergence of this Renaissance notion of a, still the classical curriculum. He draws heavily on that. He, he doesn't really deviate much from it. But we have a German Bible, of course, with printing. And then he does actually reflect on the fact that no matter how much he tells the state to do this, he, he actually fails. It doesn't work, which is why his second book, The Duty of Sending Your Children to School, is actually more directed at parents saying, you have a, a spiritual and religious duty and imperative here to help educate your children. That's This is quite unusual. You know, this is universal schooling. The idea had never really arisen before. It's very much a thing which the elites did. So suddenly we have universal education and schooling is part of, it was a form of reformation, you know, it was part of it, an intrinsic part of it, because you had to allow people to read scripture directly, to be literate, to study and understand it. And uh, at this point, we'll get to Erasmus, but Eras at this point, education is not purely an end in itself. That's an important point. Education is still a religious imperative but it has a much wider definition and universal schooling uh, is terribly important. And of course, his influence is massive, especially in Northern Europe. And of course, through emigration into, into the US and Australia, there's still big Lutheran communities in those places. Would it be too crude to say that perhaps his biggest long-term influence was in this type of disintermediation, as we'd call it nowadays, that you, you, it is yeah. direct engagement with with the text with the word um as it comes down in the in the gospels and so on um without the priest in the way in other words you know before there'd, there'd been this kind of rather hieratical thing about church that the the the, the, the secret truths in, in of scripture were there in, in a way to be hidden from from the people who, who weren't clever enough to understand it but luther says no the the, the way to faith and to grace is through direct contact with 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 the word of god and and that also went along with a big kind of freeing up with uh, the mass and Bibles and so on in vernacular languages, a change in the way that the, the, the priesthood was configured and so on, big changes yeah. in society as well. I think that's I think that's a really important point here. 
we have to remember the role in which technology played in all this. You know, that because we've got here somewhere learning technologies book, this one here. I have a whole chapter on printing as yeah. a learning technology because that was part and parcel. Great word you used there, disintermediation, John. That's exactly, I hadn't thought of it that way, but that's exactly right. But the disintermediation was enabled by the fact that you have at the same time Gutenberg and printing. And so you had this amplification through books into the general population, especially through schools and schooling. So it becomes a sort of Cambrian explosion, not only of religious texts, which is what Luther was hoping for, but also secular texts. Yeah. And therefore, of course, you have this, this trajectory that's created, you know, this escape velocity on the back of uh, printed books towards the Enlightenment. But this intermediation is a, it's almost a synonym for the Reformation, isn't it? Yeah. So let's press on um, with another famous name of the Reformation. John Calvin, 1509 yeah. to 1564, was a French theologian, pastor and reformer in Geneva during the Protestant Reformation. We don't say Switzerland because Switzerland didn't really exist then. You had, I think, nation states. He was a principal figure in the development of the system of Christian theology, later called Calvinism, including its doctrines of predestination and of God's absolute sovereignty and the salvation of the human soul from death and eternal damnation. Um, I'll be honest, when I was first exposed to Calvin as a Catholic adolescent in a C of E school, I found him intensely unlikable. <laughs> so I'm not going to say too much more about him, other than he clearly belongs here because he saw himself more as a teacher than a clergyman. And reading your blog post about him, Donald, it's clear that you see his influence as a curse as much as a, a, a blessing for learning. Actually, earlier when you were talking about St. Augustine and the, and the way that he kind of uh, freed up the, the idea of, of, of the way that you should learn, it, it kind of feels like Calvin is bringing all the bad stuff back in. It's getting yeah. very punitive. So tell us about Calvin, the blessing and the curse. You're absolutely right there, John. So Calvin is really a direct line from St. Augustine, St. Augustine theologically. That's an important point, if not in learning theory. So you have the concept of predestination, which of course comes there, is actually invented almost by St. Augustine. And that just to remind ourselves of the doctrine that God has eternally chosen those who he intends to save. Very different from the Catholic Church, where you have to earn your right to be saved. Yeah. And then, of course, this original sin idea, you know, the from Adam and Eve, the this affects the educational theory of Calvin because the original sin idea is that everyone has this, that your starting point is a deficit. God, I know this culture, I said we're God there, but if you well. take it both ways. <laughs> I know this culture so well because it was the schooling that I was brought up in, one where corporal punishment was commonplace. I remember getting slapped over the hands with the huge leather straps and so on. It was deeply and repulsively Calvinist at times. Uh, the schooling I was brought up with. And of course, at the same time, all the Catholics in my town, I never knew any Catholics until I went to university, they were all bussed off to another school. So mm. the Reformation, kind of Reformation is still with us. So you're right, direct line back to St. Augustine. But again, like Luther, he sees school as a form of secular salvation. So universal schooling is much more important than, Calvin was a much more important figure than Luther in this one. And Illich in his great book on de-schooling describes Calvinism as a, having literally created modern schooling, shaped it as the schooling we know today is essentially a Calvinist construct. And again, it was this idea of a religious goal, you know, understanding God through scripture, get rid of all that ritual that the Catholic Church had imposed upon people. 
and almost trying to dispense with Latin as the main uh, the main form of instruction of working in in vernacular languages. But his fight against sin was always there. This deficit model, you know, you have these in Scotland. There's a very famous figure, John Knox, who was a huge political figure. But that idea of castigating, you know, going back to our, our program on the sermon and the parable. Well, this was more teaching as preaching. This was pulpits. This was a moral instruction. You will sit and listen, and if you don't, you will be punished because you are sinful. Hmm. Nevertheless, the good side of all this, if there's a good side at all, is universal education from a very early age, which Calvin was the first to say, no, we should start this uh, you know, uh, uh, much earlier than we ever imagined before. And there was this huge encouragement for the building of schools, and importantly, free schooling for everybody especially the poor. The idea was to democratize schooling and education away from the uh, the rich towards the poor. And in, in Scotland, for example, John Knox uh, pushed for a school in every parish, and that happened very quickly. Mm. Uh, the good side of this in Scotland is you had uh, the literacy levels in Scotland uh, during and after the Reformation rose to be the highest in Europe. And some reckon that this was one of the big causal factors behind the flourishing of the Enlightenment in Edinburgh, Glasgow at that time. The yeah. famous Scottish Enlightenment with, uh, you know, the figures we know that human yeah, Smith. Smith and so on. Yeah. But there, again, going back to the point we made earlier, there's the he's also a big promoter of publishing. This mm. is what you know. We suddenly have publishing exploding across Europe into you know into the UK, into Southern Europe, and and being spread very quickly around the, around the world. So Knox in Scotland, for example, writes a book called The Book of Discipline, which is like an, a, a, a blueprint for a national a national system of education in Scotland, which did actually happen based on that individualist, you know, just you, the good book and God. Hmm. So what he does is set in motion almost accidentally a secular movement in education, free schooling, universal schooling, but tinged <laughs> with a sense of punishing learners in order to get them to their learning goals. And it's only recently, in, in my book on learning technology, I have a whole section on the technology of punishment. It was an astonishing bit to research that, you know, from the Romans onward, but especially post-Reformation, you have all sorts of bits of technology, you know, whips and paddles and leather straps to beat people in whips, even canes in the public school system to beat pupils into submission. One might think that that is gone, but it hasn't. There are still places in the world where that happens, but that was the downside of Calvinism. But I think the benefits outweigh the deficit model. Of course, we shouldn't um, make out that the Catholic system of education was really any better than that when it came to punishment. People no, who were sent yeah. off to be punished by the Christian brothers would have a, a tale or two to tell about that, I think. I think it's, it's worth picking up on as well, because what, what you have with Ignatius, and you, know, the, you have that very strong streak that comes that comes through Southern Europe, so witch hunting yeah. view, view of the world. But even the Catholic Church picks up on this Calvinist streak, especially in schooling, and mm. it becomes a, it becomes a hell of damnation. It's a place a place of horror for some kids, of course, as it still is, I'm sure. But uh, thankfully, I think we're emerging. You know, you know, the Enlightenment had very little effect on this. It, it carried on until. The, the 19th and most of the 20th century as well. We're only now reflecting on how bad this really was in terms of motivation and learning. So moving on, Desiderius Erasmus, 
yeah. mostly just known as Erasmus, 1466 to 1536. Uh, matter contradictions. A priest who was born out of wedlock, quite possibly gay, certainly wrote against what it saw as sinful homosexuality. A reformer who nevertheless stayed within the church all his life. So he's part of the Reformation, but, uh, you know, perhaps a progenitor of it, but actually stayed within the church. The prime mover behind the Reformation, according to some, Erasmus laid the egg, it was said, Luther hatched it. However, Luther called him a viper, a liar, and the very mouth and organ of Satan. Didn't hold back, Luther. No. Erasmus was a Dutch philosopher and Catholic theologian who is considered one of the greatest scholars of the Northern Renaissance. He was in his time incredibly famous uh, for his learning. Um, he, he was sort of friends with everyone all over the place. And Thomas More was a big fan, for instance, in uh, Time of Henry VIII. By the 1530s, his writings accounted for 10 to 20 percent of all book sales in Europe. 10 to 20 percent. I mean, that's kind of J.K. Rowling figures. Offered a professorship at Cambridge, but didn't like the weather or the wine. Also taught at Oxford and worked in the Netherlands, Belgium, Germany, Italy, Switzerland and France. A European all over, a humanist. Erasmus marks a change in attitudes towards learning, you write in your blog, Donald. Donald, what was that change? Yeah, so here we have a, almost a synthesis of, you know, the Reformation and Counter-Reformation. You know, it, it's called the Prince of Humanism. You know, a humanist. What, what does that actually mean? Mm. Well, although he was a Catholic, he really was picking up on the flavors of the Reformation here. So the word, you know, and this really is the foundation of this change in attitude towards learning. And Erasmus wrote many books on the topic of learning. So uh, there's a lot of depth to Erasmus. He was a man who was constantly uh, on the move, a, a pan-European figure. His books, as you say, were incredibly popular. You know, he was a sort of bestseller, as it were, across mm -hmm. Europe, and that's important. Starting with a sort of very simple, uh, a almost textbook called uh, Adagia, which is 800 proverbs. They were in Latin, which is the downside. Nevertheless, they were typical of the sort of moral instruction that was around at that time. And then, of course, his very famous book, the one he's perhaps best known for, In Praise of Folly. It was written in the early 16th century, which was actually written in England. And it has a very English flavour to it. You know, it's full of, it's full of, it mocks the Catholic Church, basically. It's full of satire. You know, the whole, that whole thing about the abuses of, of, the, of the Catholic Church are there. He attacks monks and laymen and monasteries, the monastic tradition, and also secular conceits. You know, he has a go at both. So it's a wonderful figure here. A, a, a truly modern figure, post-Reformation figure, almost a, well ahead of his time. But for the purposes of this program today, I think it's important to concentrate on his contributions to schooling or, or learning. And so he writes Copia Foundations of the Abundant Style, which is, again, well, I think he was at Cambridge when he writes this. That's, that's the first time he has a real deep dive into, into learning theory, because it, it's a, it sort of talks a lot about pedagogy and style, you know, and I was, this is all about teaching and good teaching techniques. And this goes back to some of the figures we've already mentioned, the revelation that teachers should not be beating people into submission. Mm. And then with the, you know, he has several other brilliant texts here, the right, uh, right method of instruction, and another really good one on the education for children, which is, you know, drawing out, it's, it's an educare, uh, you know, a drawing out of knowledge, not uh, a beating knowledge into people. And 
very practical stuff, you know, like take notes. <laughs> you know, I still go to conferences, talk to 2,000 people and hardly any of them is taking notes. And you go, you're learning professionals. You're going to forget all this. Why are you not doing what Erasmus recommended uh, 500 years ago? You know, uh, and note taking in your own words, always have a notebook on hand was, you know, th this is the sort of stuff he's coming to. A real detailed understanding of both teaching and learning. He's also very good at retrieval practice, curiously, and repetition. I mean, this is, you know, hundreds of years before Ebbinghaus and modern theory on this, but he really does understand the nature of memory and describes memory, actually, you know, uh, and the, the retrieval practice and the importance of internal rehearsal recalling things and repeating them and repeating them with understanding and using techniques like images, charts and tables to understand knowledge, making it visual as well, uh, teaching yourself what you think you know in order to reinforce the learning and put it into long-term memory. He really understood the mechanisms of memory, which is interesting. Put it, and also, you know, try teaching yourself, try putting your own, what you think you know to the test through teaching. I think also in the a really nice little book on the education for children, which you wrote a bit later, was all about the importance of play. Again, an incredibly contemporary topic, uh, you know, getting away from this idea of punishment and so on. He was quite platonic also in his view. You know, he had a bit of a, a distrust of stories and fiction. He, rec he recommended that we didn't fall into this sort of sophistry, you know, that sort of medieval scholastic tradition of, uh, you know, arguing endlessly about logical points. And he really didn't like the literature that was around then, the chivalric literature and myths of King Arthur. Remember in England, he thought, do not show this to your children. This is a complete distraction. It'd be very unpopular amongst modern parents. He would have said, don't give your kids uh, Harry Potter books. It's a waste of time for them. Focus on the importance of playing themselves and allowing children to be critical thinkers and understanding their own, own thinking. But if it was around now, he'd probably be criticizing computer games and uh, it probably would be as as trivial yeah TikTok and twitter you know uh, there's a, there is always an educationalist uh, you know telling you that <laughs> comics were rubbish or television or films or they're going to rot your mind so he, he brings that into it very early on i suppose and he writes books like this on the civility of children you know he doesn't believe that children should just let rip with critical thinking he thinks the teachers is really an important guide for a child so that's a book. That's a book on child, child behavior, actually, that he writes, and then another book called *The Education of a Christian Prince*, which is all about seeing the person as an individual. And this is what emerges importantly, which is why Illich thinks that this period is so important. We have the emphasis on the learner, not necessarily the teacher. That was, uh, you know, a revelation from the Reformation, and uh, it, I think that's the the healthy part of all this. I think it's so interesting to see these three massive figures in the Reformation also so important for the, the, the shaping of um, modern education. Um, and now we're going to add another with John Amos Comenius, 1592 to 1670. He was a Czech philosopher, pedagogue and theologian who's considered the father of modern education. He served as the last bishop of the unity of the brethren before becoming a religious refugee and one of the earliest champions of universal education, a concept eventually set forth in his book, Didactica Magna. As an educator and theologian, he led schools and advised governments across Protestant Europe through the middle of the 17th century. Donald, what's he add? I really love ending on this figure. I really love Comenius. 
uh, for the following reasons. He brings all this together. This is a guy who was hounded across Europe because, of course, in the post-Reformation figure that Europe was on fire. You know, it was war was everywhere. The defenestration in Prague, uh, 30 years war and so on. But he is real. He's this real bridge between the Reformation and the Enlightenment for me. You know, a lover of the scientific re uh, revolution. And he brings in a very interesting, I think this really is almost Erasmus-like, a thing called pan-Sophism, the idea of universal wisdom, a universal syllabus for everyone on the planet, rich or poor. So what is this unified? It's very particular, this. It's, it's a unified system of education, but also a unified curriculum, switching away from the classics. This is the important thing, to get away from Latin and the ancients towards a modern form of education. And he's a big believer in science. The scientific revolution is happening, you know, and uh, he writes a book called The Way of Light. This is written also in England, and he dedicates it to the Royal Society. You know, he's a great admirer and thinks that science will be showing us the way, as indeed it did towards, uh, towards the Enlightenment. So you're switching away from the classics, and you're giving everyone universal access to learning and education, which was a big uh, Lutheran and Calvinist feature. But you get that sense with him that this is a completely borderless idea, you know, borderless education, that this is important. Education and schooling is important for the whole world, rich, poor. And he mentions this, male, female, rural, urban. He, he says everyone should have access to this because this is the future of humanity itself. He also mentions the disabled. The very, you know, all that inclusiveness that we take for granted these days didn't exist then on gender, uh, the disabled, but he recommends this for everyone. So uh, a really, you know, contemporary figure in that sense, but, and here's the great contribution he makes really, out of printing, he writes the first ever textbooks. But they're an amazing thing. They're all available online and you can actually look at them and they are wonderful things to read and look at. So the doors of the tongues unlocked, which is written in the early 17th century, is it's the first real teaching and textbook like a little mini encyclopedia for kids but it's one of the first uh, textbooks to teach language by relating it to objects in the real world so he has this sort of almost aristotelian categories you know animals in the farmyard cows hens and so on this is what this became a bestseller he was an absolute publishing sensation comedian. Mm. The idea was to lift education out of religious texts and scriptures and create its own literature, namely textbooks. Then his his later attempt was even more amazing, I think called the Orbis Pictus, which was a picture book with text. So this is the first textbook to use pictures to illustrate the content and text, connecting words with things. And again, have a look at this book online. It's yeah. so amazing. So he starts very... Uh, in a very contemporary fashion with phonics <laughs> or the phonetics of a language to teach language. That's the, when you open the book, that's the first thing you hit. He thought that that was important because a child had to learn to read before they could understand the literature that he was about to present to them through textbooks. Then he goes into inanimate, inanimate objects, you know, and then, then through into animate objects, botany, zoology, and then through into religious and humans and human activity and so on, very structured. All in these beautiful woodcuts, beautiful books, beautiful woodcuts, gradually increasing the curriculum in terms of its complexity. So, you know, later on, he, he then starts to really reflect on pedagogy in more detail, having written the textbook. So you have things like the Didactica Magna, which is a book 
I mean, it's a bit like Rousseau, in a sense, and Emil and so on. He's starting to explore detailed pedagog pedagogies. What works? What doesn't work? Mm. And it actually starts to even comes up with a sort of schema, which we are now well aware of, of, you know, infant, secondary, primary, tertiary education. And the interesting thing about uh, Comenius is that it, he was left fallow for centuries. Really. He was only really rediscovered in the 19th century hmm. because it, it was such a, you know, when people were amazed when they, they started, started to fully understand his impact on taking printing from the Reformation, universal schooling from the Reformation, but turning it into a secular process of learning something we do for all of our children now. So his vision, his pan-Sophic vision has come to pass. That's so interesting. You know, you, you, we start by wondering what do religious educators really have to add to, well, they invented the, the textbook, you know, no Comenius, no, no Dorling Kindersley and so on. Whole industry built on, on, on the back of that invention and, and yeah. he was the first and also universal education. We take it for granted now that I think that everybody, uh, you know, uh, pretty much everybody appreciates education as universal good. I mean, almost no one would argue against that, uh, but it had to be established as an important principle. And there it was. Yeah. So summing up, how should we think about the interdependence of religious faith and learning that we've seen in the work of this episode's thinkers um, in an age like our own when we often I think we tend to assume that these things are at loggerheads don't we faith and learning yes I think that's right and that, that, that's a mistake because when you actually read the works by the people we have just described they have you're often not sort of knocked off your chair by their contemporary ring. The, uh, the, this is the this is the point. But people think the Enlightenment was the big breakthrough, but actually it happened much earlier. Yeah. And these are the figures who ha this had to happen for the Enlightenment to take place. There is no Locke, Rousseau, Smith, uh, Wollstonecraft, uh, you know, which we covered in another program. There is no there is no Enlightenment without these figures because you don't have that base of universal education across not only Europe, but uh, into the uh, ultimately into the Americans and the rest of the world, without these figures having created the garden in which people could grow with textbooks, schooling, uh, an enlightened view of motivation in the learner, the disintermediation, as it were, of learning from the structures of the church and even the state. I think they managed to create something truly but you know they were they're far more interesting did things in far greater depth than most people imagine we tend to fixate on Rousseau for example there is no Rousseau without these figures yeah. and there, there there's no in a funny sort of way many of these figures also rely on earlier scholars like the Arabs Arab scholarship we covered yeah. and Saint Augustine you know this is a long story that goes back to the Greeks and the major religious figures but we have these religious educators yeah. who were the bridge from that into the Enlightenment. But they were entities in themselves. They weren't just a bridge. They did really create universal school schooling. It happened long before the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment just really, in a sense, turned it into a truly secular movement. Hmm. It, it's a very broad sweep that, that we've taken with this episode. Um, perhaps the, these origin stories are always interesting for, for that. Because you know we're looking at things that happened quite a long time ago, relating them to them 
to our own time, but here we've kind of moved through a, a period of centuries. And it's made me think of a new category that um, I can use for my SEO in listing the great minds on learning. We're, we're kind of perilously close to getting to intellectual history here, uh, which I remember when I was at university was a, a very, not a very well-regarded discipline. Well, that, uh, that's right. I mean, the, the, you know, although we are explicitly about learning theory in these programs, John, you can't disassociate that from the bedrock of intellectual, the intellectual milieu in which all of these figures lived, wrote, and worked and lived. It emerged in your learning theory as a sort of epiphenomenon that arose from that. That's what's interesting about these reflections when we talk about it. You yeah. get that real feeling that it's linked to the philosophy and the politics of the day. It's not separate from it. Learning isn't some independent thing that only takes place in universities and schools. It's deeply rooted in the cultural phenomena and historical changes that take place beneath it. And I think that's a, a great place to end. Uh, thank you very much today, Donald. I've, I've learned something. Which you would always yeah, I, I really enjoyed today's episode. You know, it made me reflect a little bit on my own childhood. And, the, and of course, you, you you were brought up in a different tradition. Yeah. But we, I think we, you know, the conclusion is we all, surely all benefited from from the, the learning we had as children. And that was a result of these pioneers way back then. Yeah, perhaps not from the corporal punishment and the, the board yeah, rubber. Board rubber aimed with unerring accuracy at, at one's head by the master. I still remember I can still remember the veins in my wrist being burst open by this thing called a Taws in Scotland, being the place called Log Logelli, when I got six for the best and I was completely blameless. Yeah. You know, I got six of the best for being late for school because uh, the bus was late. <laughs> yeah, can you yeah. believe? Yeah, yeah. You kids, you don't know you're born. Okay, thank you very much. Great Minds on Learning comes from the Learning Hack team and is produced by John Halmer. Sound editors by Isaac Peacock. Social media by Jay Curtis. Graphics by David O'Connor. The podcast is based on a series of blog posts written by Donald Clark and would like to thank Donald for his kind collaboration in this project. If you're a fan of these podcasts and want to support us and get exclusive member benefits, go to patreon.com forward slash learning hack. 